Hey everyone, before we start, just want to let everybody know, in the last part of it, um, maybe the last like 20 minutes, we use um, explicit language, so if you're listening with kids, you might want to put some headphones in when you get to that point. Alright, enjoy the episode. They're no longer thinking that way. In fact, actually, after all these years of passing this man, for what seems to be the first time, they see him and they stop. Welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And we are continuing with our series on Acts, a uh, guidebook against oppression and imperialism. I can't remember the official title. A field guide. That's it. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so we're back in Acts chapter 3. Uh, Don, is there anything you want to cover before we get started on th- this new chapter? Well, I guess maybe, George, if if you'd be willing to just kind of recap what your experience has been with it, the first two chapters and maybe share, like, for those maybe that are jumping in and haven't listened to chapter 1 chapter 2, though I recommend go back and listen. But, um, you know, what... Like, how has this been so far for you? And I know we did the Book of Acts a long time ago, probably seven or eight years ago. Um, But it was not with this lens, though some of it has some overlap. But it wasn't with this lens. This is a relatively new lens for me uh, reading this. So just what, what so far, has anything struck you so far in the first two chapters? Um, Let's see. Uh, something, well, I guess the thing that really comes to mind is, uh, what we talked about last week in Acts chapter two about, um, Shavuot and, you know, normally when we talk about Acts two, it's about the re-giving of Torah and the, uh, idea behind that, but, um, just spending time, uh, talking about the needs of, of everybody in, you know, your, your favorite uh, rabbinical saying of don't, don't steal the opportunity for me to help you or bless you. Um, Just because, you know, the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is something that runs so deeply in our, in our veins as Americans, that the idea that um, there's a deficit in some area that somebody can help with, even if we meet the standards of, or the, the societal standards of not needing any help, and I'm using air quotes with that, um, is still kind of working in me. Because just, you know, there are so many times where I don't realize how arrogance and shame steals the opportunity for us to be blessed because of what we've been taught in the American church, or the, the white American church. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
thing because we spend so much of our life trying to decide what is the difference between needs and wants when we think about like and to use a churchy word stewardship right like do i really need that or is it just something i want what's fascinating when it comes to others helping us we flip it and we say oh i don't need your help the truth is 90 percent of the time we do need the help and we just don't want the help um and so it's a really fascinating thing when it comes to community uh interaction is we we flip that financial thing so when it's financial we we try to differentiate is that really a need or is that just a want and that seems to be healthy for the most part i think it can be unhealthy but when it gets to receiving and participating in community we do a weird thing where we like if i if someone said don do you need help with your lawn i could finish the lawn on my own it is possible for me to do that i've done it right but um yeah like it's more than a one person job uh it it would save me time it would save me energy it would save me a lot of things so so yeah i i could i could use the help um but the truth is at the end of the day i'll say no because i don't want the help and we really need to reflect on that like we need to we need to accept our needs when it comes to help. Yeah. Um, and what was the other thing? Uh, oh, and the, the, in Acts chapter two forty or verse 46, the, uh, day by day attending their, or attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I mean, that's the ESV translation, but, um, just the, you know, we, we talk about this quite often and, it's always just nice to, I don't know, not even be reminded, but just the idea that this was, the Christianity was still meant to be with Judaism and not a separate thing from there. And just to see where uh, that has gone. And I, I, it's weird. I get pretty cynical about that. Right. Um, and the temptation is to throw everything out when that's the case and start over. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't know, but, um, yeah. You know, I was, I was in a conversation last night. I'm helping, um, this brilliant teacher. Her name is June Price and she is putting together an anti-racism course for predominantly white churches. Um, and so I have the privilege of working with her. And so last night we were doing one of our sessions with a group of people and, it struck me because it's something that uh, a woman named Andrea said that about white, white Jesus. And she was just talking about how the fact that she grew up and her, she is a person of color. And so she grew up in a setting where she only imagined Jesus, the apostles, everyone is white. And what struck me for the first time that I don't, I don't know that I ever thought of before is that it's not only that Jesus is white, but the moment Jesus becomes white in our mind and in our storytelling of scripture, then it makes Judaism the enemy instead of Rome. And we it allows us to be anti-Semitic. So if Jesus remains Middle Eastern and Jesus remains Jewish, the enemy is Rome. 
uh, the oppressor. But the moment Jesus becomes white, we make Judaism the oppressor and the enemy. So it's a really fascinating thing that we've done, and it's why we've become anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish in so many ways, is because of that we've, we make Jesus white. You know, one of the practices I always do with churches when I want to show them some of their white supremacy is I say, unbeknownst to them, you know, we're kind of doing a lead in here, so you might see where I'm going. I'm like, close your eyes, picture the apostles. Now, now describe the apostles to me. And I'll ask them, were they white? And I've never had anyone say no. Everyone has always said, it doesn't matter what race the person is that close their eyes, the apostles are white. And that right there is horrific um, in the way that we do things. So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's, uh, you, you were talking about as soon as we make Jesus white and, and remove his Jewishness from him, it, it is how I, I, I heard that. Yes. Um, I recently had a conversation, so I had to read at a funeral over the weekend, and I was having a conversation with somebody there about, because uh, it was a, it was at a Catholic church, and he <laughs> brought up the Council of Nicaea and the changing of the Sabbath, and was explaining to me why he views the Catholic church to be awful. And <clears throat> it made, he, it, he, I don't think he, the way that he was posting his argument was it made it sound like that um, the the Jewishness of Jesus was fine, but the enemy were still <clears throat> the Jews in the same way that Christians uh, fight each other. Right. Which was interesting because I had never really heard that before. Like at least <clears throat> I had never heard that argument from, from that perspective. I see. And, and you're talking about this and just uh rattled that memory so yeah. yeah anyway uh what what what's your experience so far with this i mean you're the one that's pretty much leading the conversation on it well i mean i've had the privilege of talking about this in a few different settings uh over the last few months and for me what's striking me so it's it's already things that have settled into my being so it's not like even the things we'll talk about today are exciting to me but they're not something striking me as new or different right um at the moment i think what i've been enjoying over the conversations with you and in the other settings i've been in is axe has been such a tiptoeing through the tulips no pun intended with uh our calvinist friends um group of teachings and storytelling right that it's all really this it's the start of the church and it's exciting and it's powerful and it's happy in a lot of ways. And I think, I think changing the mood of it really brings in some of the, the depth of the book. And I can see it in the people that I'm talking to about it with, right? Is that I can see them going, wow, what I kind of read at a cursory reading or what I knew on a surface level really has a lot more depth and a lot more um, significance and emotion and stuff. And to me, I love when people 
start to taste the Bible at a deeper level. I don't know if you can taste things at a deeper level, but if you could, if you could Gordon Ramsay this shit, that's what it would be, right? Um, and so that to me is what's been really exciting is just, you know, seeing you have some aha moments and seeing some other folks have some aha moments. And I think we might even have some here in this next chapter that we're going to talk about today. Well, I'm excited. Um, and full disclosure, like I said before, we weren't, or before we started recording, I am not as prepped as I was last week or the week before. So I'm excited to sit in the hot plate again. All right. All right. Where do you want to start? At the beginning of Acts 3. Kind of threw me for a loop there. I was expecting the last three verses again. No, I, I would love at some point, maybe someday I'll, I'll, write, I'll write a commentary on Acts. That won't happen. I'm too lazy. Um, so in chapter three, it begins with uh, Peter and John. And once again, as you said a few moments ago, going up to the temple, right? They didn't imagine that this Christian thing, this Jesus savior, this whole movement eliminated them from participating in the temple uh, practices. So they still identified themselves as part of the Jewish community. So they're going up to the temple. And in verse two, it says, a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful, at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay. So I think oftentimes, at least in my experience, when that's taught, it's really just showing the power of Jesus through the apostles and they're, they're continuing on healing and stuff. But if we want to read this in a different way, there's so much more going on here. So, so when I, you were listening to that and when you read through it this week, George, um, what are some elements there that you think should catch our attention or should be something that um, causes us to pause a little bit um, and, and ask some questions? Okay. Well, the first would be um, the, th the three o'clock prayer. Okay. That's in verse one, because usually if there's, uh, and I remember this from sitting, going through Matthew with you years ago. Um, if there's mention of a specific time or offering given in the text surrounding the temple, then that should cause you pause. Right. Uh, so that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing would be the beautiful gate. Mm -hmm. Being so specific. The third would probably be um, 
the in the name of Jesus, okay. which we've talked. I don't know if we've talked about it on here, but we talked about um, I, if we haven't. But go ahead. That? I said I'd be shocked if we haven't. But go I ahead. would be too. But you never know. Um, th but the the concept of anytime somebody invokes the name of something or or the name of someone that should also give you pause because it's not actually how we think of it today. Uh, right, it's not some kind of magical incantation. Yeah, it's not a magic trick. Um, and just doing a quick breeze, that top, that's top three things right there. Okay, so I think, I think you did a good job um, of picking out important places, people, things, or names. Uh, specifically name of Jesus. Um, so when you think about this story and just like the storytelling itself, what should surprise us? Um, I guess that the, the person who was not able to walk was healed. Okay, I, I don't know that that necessarily surprises us because I think that we're kind of anticipating at this point, having known the Gospels and the story of Jesus, I don't know that that's, that's so shocking. Maybe the first time Jesus healed someone, it, it is. Um, so we later find out that this man is 40 years old. And what does it say that people did every day? Uh, gave him alms. No, brought him no. to the temple. Oh, brought him to the temple, yes, to, to ask for alms. That means every day for the last 40 years, he was brought to the temple. Which means, how many times do you think Peter and John passed this guy? Uh, enough to fill, to, to fill years. Sure. And, and same way with Jesus. Same way with all the other apostles and the disciples. So this man has been sitting there. They have seen him sitting at this gate every time, probably, that they've entered the gate through the beautiful gate, which my understanding is the main gate, right? Yeah. Every time they're, they pass him uh, and they don't heal him. Jesus never healed this man. Jesus never engaged this man as far as we know. For all we know, they have. They've given him alms and they've seen him before. But in this moment, this is a really interesting thing to me that it points out that he's taken there every day and the apostles are going up at three o'clock at the hour of prayer, which means that it's something that's on their schedule. Like they're still keeping a schedule of prayer, which means that they pass him every day at three at least. Yeah. But today they stop. Right. And so what are some things that should uh, we should consider when reading about like their interaction with him. Like what are some things that happen in this that um, uh, the, I guess I'm not entirely sure of the question. Like what, what in, based on the text, what is it that we can pick out about their interaction that we should pay attention to? Or, yeah. okay. Um, I mean, Peter looks intently at him and so does John. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, and, and by calling out to him, he then looks at those two. Expecting no, he, he and he fixed his attention on them. Right, but it doesn't say, but then what do they say to him? Hold on. Uh, 
the it, he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter says that he doesn't have gold or silver, but what he has, he will give him. Right. So let me see. Verse four. Yeah. Peter looked intently at him as did John and said, look at us. Right. He isn't looking at them. They, they, they give him permission to look at them. Yeah. That's, that's what I, I didn't say they gave him permission, but what I said is those who are looking at him and then he calls to them. But, but someone doing alms would not typically look at the person. They look down. They would have their head down. They would be a humbled position and hold out their hand. And what Peter and John do that's different here is they say, no, look at us. Right? And then he looks at them. Right? And I think that that piece there of Peter and John saying, look at us, what is that doing that is different than in other settings with this man has asked for alms. Um, giving him dignity. Yeah, I mean it's it's equality. It's it's saying like you you don't have to avert your eyes from us. You don't have to be ashamed uh, in our presence. You don't have to, but instead you can look at us. Um, and so in this way is this really powerful moment, right? That that it's not just that. They saw him and he saw them, but they saw him, they approach him, and then they say, look at us, right? And then they do something else. What else do they do? Uh, oh, he took the, he took him by his right hand and pulled him up. Right. So why is that important? Why tell us it's his right hand? It wouldn't be covered in shit. Okay, so maybe a more uh, nuanced uh, approach to it. What was that? So yeah, a more nuanced way of saying it. What would be a more uh, general um, reading that? You and I are on the same on, on the same level. I'm I'm welcoming you into where I am at. And also think about all throughout the scriptures. It says, "And God with a strong right arm rests them." And God with a strong right hand reaches in and pulls them from oppression. God with a strong right arm. And so this whole reaching with a right hand and grabbing hold of someone who is marginalized or oppressed is, is this pattern that we see over and over and over again in scripture, right? And, and again, this becomes really important for us to see that in this setting, this man, what is this man's name? Are we given a name? Which means what? Uh, that I have no, I have no idea. He's not worthy of a name. Shit. Right? Like we talk about yeah. that, the Exodus, the Pharaoh isn't named, but the midwives are named. Yeah. And in this instance, this man isn't, doesn't have a name. In fact, when he's healed, he goes into the temple, and what do the people say? They don't say, hey, there's George. Hey, guy. Uh, they were filled with wonder about what happened to him. Right, but what do they call, refer to him as? Uh, I don't know. Basically, the guy. Isn't this the guy that sat at the temple every day begging for alms? 
<laughs> yeah. They don't even know his name. They pass him every single day. And he doesn't have a name. Nobody there knew the man's name. And it's also interesting to me. It doesn't say that his family took him up daily. What does it say? Uh, it says that people would lay him daily at the gate. People. Yep. When the paralytic or, uh, yeah, the paralytic is lowered through the roof uh, to be healed. How are those people referred? Uh, going off of memory, I believe it's his friends, but let's see if I can find the text. Let's see. It's where game music should be playing. Something that's not copy written and we'll get a suit. Okay. Which okay, are you talking about the the one who's lowered through I'm sorry, I was trying to search the one that was lowered through the roof or the paralytic who was on his mat? Lowered through the roof. Okay. Let's see. Then some people, yep, some people. So what, what are we supposed to be doing here with this stuff? I, that's a very broad question. Could you narrow it down a little bit? Yes. What, um, what is it denoting to us in these, in these stories? about relationships and about others and um, about uh, the way the community embraced or treated uh, people? Uh, I would say off the cuff that they were embraced by those around them. They weren't reliant on a specific you know, like we rely heavily on nuclear family, or at least the, the idea of that to help out and to constantly be those people that we rely on. There was a broader net. Right. Like the, the, the old adage, it takes a village. Right. So the community would take care of them and see that they were able to at least get to a place where they were able to procure finances to survive or what have you. Right. But then there's also a piece to this that I think is important that sometimes we can do our duty, um, but remain detached, right? Like I'm sure this person uh, received alms from many generous people passing them each day, right? And I'm sure there were regulars that regularly stopped by. And I'm sure some of those people did indeed know this person's name. But I would argue that a lot more people 
this person was invisible. It reminds me of my friend Willard, uh, an unhoused person here in Toledo, though I, is now housed. But the first time he came to my church, um, him and I had become friends. And then he came to my church about a year later and someone said, it's nice to see you, Willard. And he said, it's nice to be seen. Um, and that always strikes me. I mean, I, I'll never forget that moment when he said it's nice to be seen because when he's on the street, he's invisible. Um, and so in that moment in, in the church, he was actually seen. And I would argue that in the same way, he was in, this gentleman was invisible outside of the gates. But when he comes in, then all of a sudden everyone recognizes him, right? It's, it's amidst, it's when he walks into the temple that he's recognized. And I think this is really significant that he becomes one of the first witnesses to what's happening. Why again, is this important? Uh, well, it harkens. Okay. So my thoughts go to the resurrection and the people that saw Jesus's body right away. You know, the women who, in the context of this historical moment would not have been trusted to, to be believed. I think that's a bit stronger than. Pro yeah. Pro yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you'd prefer a, a male witness yeah. uh, in a court hearing, but a female witness was a witness. Um, but it still is the unexpected person. Like out of all the people Jesus could have appeared to first, he chose uh, these these two women, or this particular woman in the case of Mary Magdalene, right? Yeah. Um, so Jesus chose that. Where else do we see a person with disability um, become a witness for God? Um, Moses. Yeah, exactly. So Moses in the Exodus, we, it says, you know, he had a speech problem and, you know, the church has done a great job of, you know, able bodying that and making it maybe at worst a stutter or a cleft palate or something. Um, but a lot of the rabbis read it as that there was like a, he had a pretty significant uh, deformed uh, face, uh, and that it was a genuine or true disability that, uh, you know, precluded him from actually being able to speak well or in a manner that was easy to understand. Uh, and so here he is, um, Moses with a disability becomes the first savior, the first witness for God. Look, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Jesus comes as a bastard. Jesus comes as impoverished. And Jesus comes from one of the worst towns you could be from. And all of those things are intentional by God. We have to imagine they weren't circumstantial, that they were intentional by God, that David is the runt of his family. Mm -hmm. He's forgotten and becomes king, right? So all of these stories often have uh, these, these people who are born uh, in 
or or maintain or contain a a thing of a perceived flaw and i want to be very careful there it's a perceived flaw um or mistake or error or whatever it might be however your theology might wrap some of this stuff up and instead it's it's that they were perfectly capable of being a witness so what changed about this man aside from his ability to walk yeah um i i would guess his social status um okay certainly but i'm saying like as the actual human being what has changed he is able to walk with the help of others other than that i have i i don't know perfect nothing he's the same witness that sat outside the gate as he is the person standing inside the gate okay so nothing has changed about him except for what he can walk yeah and now what happens people listen to him people listen to him nothing changed he's the same human being he was outside the gate that had to be brought there every day as he is the person inside the gate except for the fact that now people will listen to him because he can walk people will trust his witness people will hear what he has to say this this should be a real point to us and why is this important for us to think about this chapter in terms of um being counter to empire well um typically those who have some type of uh perceived imperfection um or who are not the run of the mill you know stamps what what society considers normal are affected most by the gears of empire and so you know i mean i fit i'm a cis heteronormative male mm-hmm. empire works for me so yeah. if i believe that there is something wrong with what is currently going on and i need to sit at the feet of the people who are being oppressed the most or experiencing the most oppression and that usually comes in the form of somebody that doesn't fit my mold. Mhm. Yeah, I would say every every part of us that doesn't fit societal norms moves us one click further away from being a reliable witness in empire's perspective. Right? So if you're queer, that moves you one click. If you're a person of color, that moves you a click. If you're uh if you're not male it moves you a click if you aren't you know able bodied uh it moves you a click if you aren't uh don't have perfect mental health it moves you a click and what it does is continues to stigmatize and move people further and further away from being a reliable witness until we can just dismiss people think about the number of people that bring concerns to the forefront who are dismissed as not being reliable witnesses because of their circumstances most of the time out of their control 
Yeah, it's it's a large number. Yeah, and and that empire thrives on that. It's interesting to me that this person becomes the witness in this moment, right? He becomes the first major witness in this new movement to overthrow empire because Jesus is believed to be Messiah. And so the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the kingdom of Caesar must fall. And so this person becomes the first major witness that we see in Acts. Um, outside of the apostles in Acts 2. Sure. And it's it's an unexpected person. It's a person with no name. It's a person that has been passed by for the X number 33 years of Jesus's life. Right? We imagine that at some level, this is shortly after Jesus's death. So this person is older than Jesus. Whoa. It says they're bringing him to the temple every day. Now, I doubt as an infant, he was brought to the temple. But I would be willing to bet as a child he was brought to the temple to ask for alms. And so his entire life he is being brought here. And so Jesus passed him all the time. Now, I'm not trying to say Jesus was one of the jerks uh, that just passed him by and that this was the specific and significant moment. But here's, to me, again, this is a powerful thing for us to understand is that the voices that empire marginalizes ends up also getting marginalized in the communities that should be lifting that voice up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm that I'm not laughing because that's a, what you're saying is crazy. I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. And I think about all the times that, uh, the church has tried to say we know what's best for those people instead of sitting and listening to what's wrong. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that we perpetuate and we're taught to from very, very small ages. Yep. And so you grow up and, and, and this, is, this is the environmental norm. And so when you start to roll against it and you're that small pebble in the gears, you find yourself you can find yourself on the outs. Yes. I mean, I know that this is something that, that you've experienced through, through doing this. And, you know, I've, I've gone through that, not to that degree, but it's just such a weird concept that you won't listen to the people that you claim to want to help. And then it just becomes spiritual masturbation. Churches, ministry programs often contribute to marginalization, right? Um, we assume what people need and we give it to them um, instead of asking what they need. Um, I always love that when Jesus would walk up to someone who uh, I believe the, the person that you mentioned that was brought to the, um, to the well, I believe this is how the story goes. If my memory serves me right, I know it happened a few times within Jesus ministry, but he says, do you want to be healed? Like, what do you want from me? Um, he doesn't assume what the person wants or needs. He asks, what do you want from me? And I think that that's so powerful. The number of times that people with any kind of disability or any kind of uh, 
you know, experience that is outside of the norm. The church prays, lays hands on them and casts out demons and demands God in the name of Jesus, which is the irony here. We'll get to that. Then in the name of Jesus uh, to cast out demons, to cast out illness, to cast out disability. And rarely, if ever, ask the person, what do you need? Um, I, I think of a story. There was this, uh, oh, I want to say it was, uh, I'm not even going to guess. There was a story of um, inner city ministry. And I think it's just a parable. I don't think it truly happened. But um, a church went into a, a, a community, an impoverished community in their city and said, hey, um, we're here to help. And the community says, awesome. We need more jobs in our community. And they said, okay. And they went and they built a community center for them. And they come back and the community's still poor and the community's still struggling. And they're like, they're like, all right, we're here to help. And they're like, we need more jobs. And they're like, perfect. We're going to build a church. And they build a church in the community. And it comes down to this idea that the church often does not listen and include and continues to marginalize the marginalized. Um, if we really believe that empire, and I want to be clear here, like empire and government are two different things. So I just want to be very clear that when I say empire, I'm not saying every government. Uh, Israel was under a theocracy, right? I'm not saying every government. I'm just saying empire. Empire loves to get people on their side to perpetuate the marginalization that empire desires because as people are marginalized, then there's a hierarchy. And as long as there's a hierarchy, there's power. And as long as there's power, there's control. And as long as there's control, there is domination. And as long as there is domination, there's not mercy and justice and compassion. And that is a shame. And the church feeds that all the time. Um, it's why if you're doing a ministry where you're uh, caring for the poor in your community, well, bless you for that. But I hope that you're actually talking with the people who are amongst that community. I hope that if you have a board, you're inviting people from that community to be on the board um, and be a part of the leadership and have a say. But I hope that you're actually providing for the needs that they say they need instead of the needs you perceive they need. Um, there's people who are homeless, who their first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth most important needs are not housing. Yet we love to make sure that everyone's housed and then they become homeless again three months later and we blame them for not taking advantage of the opportunity. When in reality, if we would have actually stopped long enough to find out what their needs were, we could have handled those needs. And then when they finally were able to get housing, they would have been successful. Um, so this story for me in Acts 3 is just one of these, these witnesses to the fact that we need to notice those who are still being marginalized amongst us. 
we need to lift them up, though some of us might not physically be able to do what uh, Peter and John did here. Um, but we need to lift them up. We need to extend a right hand to them. We need to look them in the eye. We need to uh, treat them, see them, and, and participate with them as equals. And then we need to be shamed in some way, or we need to recognize and, and confront the fact that we, we don't listen to a lot of people until they're more like us. Um, this is why I think it's powerful where it says in the name of Jesus. So what do you think, George? They're like, you have been healed. How does it say? Um, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What does that? What that evokes in me, and forgive me if I don't remember all of this, um, the we talked about, I believe this is our treasures in heaven episode, which I don't know is if it's available currently, but um, <clears throat> the idea of uh, one person doing so much good that there's a surplus uh, in, in by evoking their name, you're calling upon that, um, which I remember specifically us talking about it with Abraham. Okay. Um, but that was like two years ago. So, Right. So, so name is more along the lines of reputation, which obviously still plays into what you were saying, right? The reputation, the character um, of Jesus. So when, when you say, when someone said praise in the name of Jesus, what they're saying, like when we close a prayer and we say in Jesus name, we pray, we're basically declaring it, it's the equivalent of saying the prayer I just made was done with the same character as Jesus has. That's what you're saying when you're saying in Jesus' name we pray. You're saying that the words I just spoke are done with the same character. It's as if Jesus, Jesus himself was praying this prayer. That my motives are pure, my intentions are good, my all these are godly, right? Um, and we have to be like, we should be a little nervous praying in Jesus's name or like demanding something in Jesus's name, right? Because if Jesus's reputation would never, or Jesus's character would never demand the things that we're demanding or in the way that we're doing it, we shouldn't do it. So in this moment, they say uh, what we have and in the name of Jesus, in the reputation of Jesus, with the same character as Jesus, why is that? What is the connection point there for us? Um, I mean, you know, aside from Jesus healing people throughout the, the Gospels, um, that's, I mean, that's what comes to mind. Although something that I love about this healing that we see is them not saying to don't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 that, yeah, that's what, that's what comes to mind. So I would argue that in some way the apostles are growing, right? Peter and John, right? At other times they're like, 
oh, Jesus doesn't have time for the little kids. Jesus doesn't have time for the 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 person. Um, Jesus, you know, or they'll say, what has this man done, right, that he's blind from birth, yeah. right? What has him or his parents done, right? Those things are gone. Yeah. They're no longer thinking that way. In fact, actually, after all these years of passing this man, for what seems to be the first time, they see him and they stop. So this is not just about in Jesus's name, they heal him, but in Jesus's name, they see him. Um, this moment that like Jesus, Jesus saw every human being as worthy of dignity and equality. They reached out their right hand. They said, look at us. They, they did all of these things because that is the reputation of Jesus. And they have shifted. They have changed. If we read through the Gospels, the apostles are very strange when it comes to interacting with people with disabilities or any kind of physical impairment, right? Um, oftentimes telling them to back off and let Jesus alone or uh, questioning why Jesus would heal these people, right? We have all these moments. And in this moment, they stop. They see the burning bush. They recognize it's sacred ground. They take off their shoes. They reach out their hand and they heal him. Um, but they've passed by that bush a thousand times, right? I, I laugh. There's a rabbi. I think he might be a modern rabbi. He just says, how many days was that bush on fire before Moses finally noticed? Um, and I, I love that because, you know, it's the same thing as this, right? Yeah. So, so in Jesus's name here is, I think it's a both and for who it's for. It's for the person that is healed, but it's also for the apostles that they have actually changed um, and that they recognize that the, the person sitting there, the nameless person sitting there is worthy. Um, and that moment of transformation will bring down empire. When we, as members of the faithful, start noticing people that we discarded as not being worthy and instead see them as worthy, in fact, maybe the most important witnesses, empire will falter. So what are your thoughts? Uh, no. no that I agree. <laughs> I mean, that's the, you know, to, to sum up this portion of the chapter that we talked about, it's the, the moment that you start amplifying the voices in the margins, empire starts to crumble and get scared. I mean, we've seen that turn on the news right now. That's been going on for years, but everything is cranked to 11 right now because those voices are getting amplified. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way to to bring about real change. And and what is it? And what is Empire doing right now in the U.S. after George Floyd's murder? 
and voices of marginalized individuals being amplified. What is empire trying to do? Control. Yep, control. And what else? We mentioned it earlier. We said with each each thing, we become what? What? We make them an unreliable witness. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so what do we point out at the protests? The, the violence of the protesters, not the instigation by the state. Uh, we constantly, you know, gaslight the situations that are finding people in the want and need to protest. We are seeing um, officials who are saying, you know, I think about Portland, I've got friends that live there and the, the protests around the, the state house were nothing that were so crazy like the media was portraying, certain media outlets were portraying, and we see that violence spikes happen after federal agents arrive, and the violence spikes went down after they left. Um, we're seeing, you know, Empire trying to increase the law and order by changing sentences for defacing monuments. I mean, there it's the tighter... <laughs> uh, Princess Leia in A New Hope says, the, t the more you grip your hands, the more star systems slip through your fingers. Mm. And, and that's what you're seeing. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting with like the, the increase in the crime of defacing a monument. Yeah. I would argue in some ways, it's not about uh, actually arresting people. It's about, once again, making it a big enough crime that we can now dismiss the person, right? That it's more about defacing a monument now is, is you should get 10 years for that, which makes it easier to dismiss it because it makes that behavior more horrific than it was on Thursday before that law went into it. And now that it's more horrific, even if they never arrest a single person, Every time they show the graffiti on a monument, people go, well, that's punishable by 10 years and people are still doing it. That's what kind of people are protesting. Even if they never arrest a single person, it's used as a manner to dismiss or make uh, people unreliable witnesses. So every time we add these new laws, I'd argue it's not necessarily about actually arresting people. It's about... Uh, making people unreliable witnesses. So all the people that are complaining about police brutality are violent. All the people that are complaining about police brutality are thieves. All the people that are protesting police brutality are criminals that should be punished for 10 years for their crimes. All the people that are upset right now that blame the police are just mad that the police are doing their job because they're all criminals they're all violent and they're all looters. And so it makes it that any good citizen, quote unquote, wouldn't be doing this and aren't even upset about police uh, behaviors. In fact, lives matter. And so the more that we do as empire to diminish the, uh, the witness of the marginalized, uh, it's, it's the power of empire, but the name of Jesus says 
those individuals are the ones that should be heard. They are the witness. They are the Moses. They are the man sitting at the beautiful gate. They are the witnesses that will ultimately destroy the empires of this world, which is why empires are afraid of them. Right? Yeah. 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 Equal access is the worst thing empire can have happen. I agree. So, well, we should probably wrap up since this episode is running a little long. Um, you know, if you haven't, uh, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Evander Bros. If you have any questions, comments, or disagreements, email us, evanderbros at gmail.com. Uh, and if you want to stop by wherever you're listening and uh, give us a rate and review, those always help. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, I have been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. See ya.